0: But I worry that our desire to fix the past compromises our ability to fix the present. Think about what we're doing today. We're spending our time debating a bill that mentions slavery 25 times, but incarceration only once, in an era with no black slaves, but nearly a million black prisoners.
1: it's monday may 15th 2023 and welcome back to Goodfellows, a hoover institution broadcast examining social economic political and geopolitical concerns i'm bill whalen i'm a hoover distinguished policy fellow and i'll be your moderator today which means i have the high honor and privilege of introducing the stars of our show two of my colleagues we jokingly refer to as the good fellows that would be the historian neil ferguson and the geostrategist lieutenant general hr mcmaster they are hoover institution senior fellows One thing you probably noticed right away is we're missing a good fellow, John Cochran, who I think for the first time in the entire run of the show, something like 106, 107 shows. John's not with us today. That's because he's in the nation's capital about to receive his Bradley prize. The next time we do a show, we'll talk about what happened that night. Congratulations, John, and uh, we miss you. We look forward to having you back. But joining us in his absence today, I guess it makes him an honorary Goodfellow. And that is making also making his Goodfellows debut is Coleman Hughes. Coleman is a writer, podcaster, and opinion columnist who specializes in issues related to race, public policy, and applied ethics. Coleman, welcome to Goodfellows. This is long overdue. My pleasure. So two things I'd like to point out, my friend. Number one, you have seriously blown the age curve on this show. I think I have neckties in my closet that are older than you. <laughs> Secondly, Coleman, we're making another first here on Goodfellows. This is the first time we've actually had somebody on the show who could call himself a bona fide rapper. Neil and HR, I hope you do not turn this into battle rap. though, <laughs> Neil, I do understand there's actually a vibrant hip-hop scene in Scotland. Well, I wouldn't know about that,
2: having left Scotland prior to the invention of hip hop, Uh, (laughs) though I once did, as I was leaving Harvard, a uh, rap version of the opening of the musical Hamilton, uh, switching the character of Hamilton for the character of Henry Kissinger. A few (laughs) members of the Harvard History Department have still bear the scars of that particular performance, but nothing to compare with the incredible stuff that Coleman has done. I mean... It's not often we have somebody who's multi-talented on on Goodfellows, somebody who's a brilliant writer, essayist, podcaster, broadcaster, but can also produce incredible music videos. I'm in I'm in all and play a mean jazz trombone. I mean it's it's Renaissance Man we have here.
0: Oh thank you all so much. I just I just wanna say I have a the, the closest thing to Hoover swag on right now. I have my, my Thomas Sowell shirt. <laughs> We love that. This is, it says, uh, you can't see, but it says, I'm a soul man. (laughs) My friend got me this shirt. So Why don't we
2: all have that t-shirt? I think that's... I think my friend had it made for me. That's 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 something that Hoover should do more of. Merch. We are we are in need of some merch like that, Coleman. Thank you for the inspiration.
1: I, I, I point out by the way, if you Absolutely. go to Coleman. You go to Coleman's website. There is a merch tab, by the way. So Coleman, Coleman's a step ahead of us as per usual. Coleman. Two topics we want to get into today with you uh, later this month is the three-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder. Uh, For those who might have forgotten, this was a black man in Minneapolis, Minnesota, who was murdered by a white police officer, prompted protests, civil unrest, looting and destruction. Let's talk about the legacy of that tragedy. But first, Coleman, a little California business, and that would be the state's progress regarding the awarding of reparations to black Californians. Uh, Just to catch people up on this, uh, California created a nine-member task force to to, to examine exactly what to do for Black Californians in the way of reparations. It will make its uh, recommendations to the state legislature by July the 1st. Coleman, two things about this stand out. Number one, in terms of reparations, we are talking cash payments, anywhere from $365,000 up to $1.2 million per individual. But secondly, Coleman, not all black Californians are entitled to this. If you uh, look at California, about 6.5% of the state's population is black. That's about uh, 2.6 million people. And the reparations task force looked at this, and here's who they decided should get it. And I will borrow their language. Quote, an African-American descendant of a chattel enslaved person or the descendant of a free black person living in the U.S. prior to the end of the 19th century. That's who gets reparations. Coleman, you've testified before Congress on reparations. I'd like to get mm-hmm. your thoughts on what California is doing. Now let's discuss the legacy of George Floyd and ways to improve the lives of black Americans and achieve the ideal of a colorblind society. So Coleman, take it away.
0: My position is that reparations should have been paid to freed slaves in 1865, thereabouts, during Reconstruction. Once you have a situation where I I think I'm the six or seven greats descendant of slaves, I should not get reparations. There is no precedent that I've ever seen, whether in America or really a, a peer nation, of giving people reparations six generations or more out from the crime in question. And there's a reason for that, which is because, uh, you know, the phrase justice delayed is justice denied. Mm-hmm. You know, justice delayed six generations is just a fantasy, right? It's, it's, a, it's a fantasy to suggest that I know exactly how my life would have been different had my great, 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 great grandfather not been a slave. That's the stuff of the butterfly effect in Hollywood. That's not the stuff of real social science in my view. So reparations should have been paid to freed slaves, perhaps to their children, uh, not to their long-run long, long run descendants. I don't think that paints a constructive path forward. On the other hand, if you want to pay reparations for people that lived through Jim Crow segregation, people like my grandfather, if you want to, to show that someone was denied a loan because of redlining in the 1950s or the 1960s, some of those people are still alive. And you see the reparations program that was implemented just outside Ohio in Evanston, where they tried to identify actual individuals. I don't know how successfully, but they tried to identify actual living individuals that were harmed by not being able to get uh, federally backed loans. So to me, the principle is you pay reparations to the individual that was harmed for the harm they experienced, not for the harm that their great grandfather experienced.
1: Right. And Evanston, uh, Coleman, it was I think twenty-five thousand dollars vouchers, and it's very specific as to what to do with the vouchers in terms of putting a down payment on a house. It was not a cash settlement.
0: Right. That's right. It, it was not a cash settlement, and uh, and it was also not reparations for slavery. Right. Right. It was. It was housing discrimination. Essentially, yeah, damages for for housing discrimination.
3: Mm-hmm. hey Colin, yeah. I, you know I, I watched your testimony on reparations mm-hmm. from i think a few years ago it was excellent yeah. by the way you know you did a phenomenal job as you did on the recent intelligence square debate too about if the Democratic party has gone too far left I love listening to that to to you engage with these issues hey, but you know um one of the points you made is that when you talk about reparations you distract people from what you could actually do to to remove barriers that that, uh, that black Americans, others have to overcome to take advantage of the great promise of America in education and in other areas. Could you maybe just weave that into the discussion, too, your observations about how this could be a distraction from what's really much more important?
0: I think that there is a difference between acknowledging history, which is a good thing. Uh, even Even apologies can be useful to some extent. And we can get into the apologies that already have been issued that people don't actually know about that's a separate issue but i think there's a difference between acknowledging the past learning about the past which we should all do and becoming obsessed and stuck in the past it's like we we know people in our lives who are unable to live to their fullest potential because they're they're hung up about negative experiences they had in childhood or they're you know they're go, they're on their eighth year of therapy on the couch you know, mulling over how they didn't have a good relationship with their mom. And meanwhile, this person just, you know, totally stuck in their own past to a degree that has gone too far, right? Something analogous happens when we are trying to litigate the, uh, the, the national crime and, uh, you know, original sin of slavery rather than just having a really rational, compassionate, evidence-based conversation about what can we do to, uh, to to positively impact the problem of intergenerational poverty, which is disproportionately high in the Black community. You have kids that are born in single-parent homes, high crime rates that have all kinds of disadvantages. They're going to failing schools. And and, uh, without denying that everyone has personal responsibility for their own choices, it's just much harder to come from that situation and. Break into the middle class or or the upper middle class, and so forth. So what are the evidence backed ways of making that issue better? That is the conversation that people of goodwill should want to have, not how much uh, should we pay the great 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 grandchild of a slave,
3: yeah, and just to connect it to the to the George Floyd murder and you know, the violent aftermath, and you know and 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 uh, the divisions that, that that uh, that horrible uh, murder laid bare. You know, you made the point in this uh, in this debate uh, that you've got on your on your podcast about has the Democratic Party moved too far left? That the, the far left reaction to George Floyd's murder, the defund the police movement, for example, really a- afflicted uh, Black communities in, in a very negative way because those are communities oftentimes that need more policing, you know, and and to to, uh, to have a, a safe env- environment. So. Uh, could you maybe segue into that part, the first part of Bill's question, in terms of uh, as we as we commemorate, you know, the the murder of George Floyd, you know, what you think has been positive in terms of reaction, and what you think has been negative?
0: So, in a way, your question is about the legacy of the Black Lives Matter movement, the Black Lives Matter moment, and the protests and riots in response to the murder of George Floyd. And here is here is my answer. The good thing you can say about what came out of that movement is that before Black Lives Matter, before 2013, almost no police officer got punished for almost any level of abuse. It was it was the bar for a police officer going to prison, much less, you know, or even facing uh, punishments from his superior officers, was astronomically high, and that held whether or not the victim of police brutality or Murder was white, black, a child, an adult, etc. BLM in that moment really started a conversation where police officers started facing consequences for those cases of brutality and, in the extreme, murder. So I would count that as a good thing for uh, the problem of police accountability. Now, here are all the bad things that came out of the BLM moment. Number one, The problem was made about race when in reality it was much more about um, police overzealousness being too quick to shoot a suspect, right? And people may think you're crazy if you say that. How could this not be about race? Every black person I've ever heard unarmed, killed by the cops, or sorry, every person I've heard killed by the cops happens to be black. How could this possibly not be about race? Are you crazy, Coleman? Well, no, because it just so happens the only cases that the media will talk about are those cases where the victim is black because that is the narrative which most taps into our emotions, uh, both as black Americans and and as white Americans and every other race. But the fact is, you know, what happened to George Floyd, it was a tragedy. The same thing that happened to this guy called Tony Timpa in Dallas in 2016, he happened to be white. The officer kept a knee on his, um, upper back for 13 minutes and killed him all the while joking as he falls unconscious. Every bit as horrible as the George Floyd video and it's on YouTube, but you've probably never heard of it because the victim happened to be white. Now I could give literally dozens of examples of white unarmed Americans killed in the precise same circumstances as all of the black victims whose names we've heard of and so the The narrative that's been painted is that this is about race, and that's divided the country where it could have been a more useful conversation about how to um, how to train police better, how to hold police accountable better, right? Secondly, the riots and the protests that occurred, the anti-police, the defund the police, all of that led to the greatest year-over-year homicide increase in the past 100 years. That's according to Pew. And that happened in 2020. And no, it was not because of the pandemic, because it didn't happen in any other country. It it happened because of the anti-police protests. And not only that, the homicide increase was almost entirely concentrated in the black community. It was not experienced very much by, by, by whites uh, and, and not as much by Hispanics. It, there is a death toll in likely, in in the thousands, in this in the small uh, single digit thousands of people of black people that were killed as a result of the police pulling back crime rising, in some cases, mass police retirement because they were so demoralized and felt so unsupported and in some cases were just actually defunded. And then, you know, in the in minneapolis, had they had to put five million dollars of emergency funding later to correct the mistake, and and um, all of this is against a background where if you actually look at public opinion in the black community, as Gallup did at the height of 2020, they found 60% of black people wanted the same police presence in their neighborhood, 20% wanted more, and only 20% wanted less, which was the BLM position. That was a minority position within the black community that was presented as if it was the majority position. So... To me, if we are weighing the balance sheet of the Black Lives Matter movement and moment, there is a lot on the negative side of that scale that simply has not been sufficiently accounted for, in my view, by the positive things it brought. So,
2: Coleman, maybe Black Lives Matter should pay reparations to the families of people who were killed as a result of that crime wave that seems to me to have followed directly from the BLM Protests, and by the way, BLM could afford to pay reparations since they've raised so much money as to be able to invest some of it in a nice real estate portfolio. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: As you know, I mean, you, you, you're, you're making this point somewhat tongue in cheek, but as you know, you know, BLM raised ninety million dollars total, they say, and certainly at least sixty-five million dollars in one injection in twenty twenty from the Tides Foundation. They secretly bought a $6 million mansion. According to New York Magazine, uh, she gave a million dollars to her baby daddy and a million dollars to her brother in a classic case of like nonprofit inurement, which can be criminally liable um, and, and hasn't been prosecuted in this case. And one wonders why that is, whether there's a political aspect to that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Black Lives Matter got a lot of money and there have been complaints from Michael Brown Sr., that would be the father of Michael Brown, um, who was killed in Ferguson 2014, of where is this money for us, right? Like BLM has made promises and saying, we're reaching out to the parents of people that have been killed. And the parents have consistently said, we haven't seen that money.
2: Well, and I had a, a question uh, which followed on from something you said earlier, that the debates about reparations are a distraction from the constructive things that we could be doing right now for uh, people who are uh, kids in poverty, kids in poor education, and so on. I heard a very inspiring uh, talk by our mutual friend Roland Fryer uh, just the other day in Austin, arguing that uh, a fundamental problem of uh, American uh, race relations is just the, the blocked channels of social mobility that could getting more kids like him out of uh poor neighborhoods uh broken families and bad schools and we're not doing it when, when you turn to this more constructive policy agenda you know what would you rather see uh happening in california or, or any other state to address the very real problem that that exists of uh disproportionate uh, poverty disproportionate exposure to violent crime what are the positive solutions if reparations is not the answer
0: So it's good you mentioned Roland Fryer because he has done, in my view, the best evidence-backed study about how to help uh, poor kids who are disproportionately black in the lowest performing, failing schools that have been failing, you know, since, uh, you know, for the past 50, 60 years. He did a study where he got control of 20 schools in Houston, 20 of the worst schools in Houston, uh, created matched pairs and random randomized an experiment where he was able to take control of half of them and t- basically do whatever he wanted, right? And this is amazing because most studies of education and, and what works are contaminated by, uh, you know, uh, the problems of observational studies, which is like, okay, these kids did better, but maybe that's because they came from better households because, uh, you know, it could be a million variables. But what he did is he really matched those variables and random randomly treated half of the schools, which with some of the principles he had learned from charter schools in New York, he basically extended the school year, extended the school day, more hours, uh, individual tutoring, frequent more frequent tests, and then linking how ki- what kids struggled with on tests to uh, what they get in tutoring, and creating. What he called a culture of high expectations, which he did by incentivizing principals in a certain way. And also, by the way, he fired half the teachers at these schools, fired all the principals, right? So that is something that cannot be done in in normal circumstances because of unions. And what he found is that they were able to raise the uh, math scores of kids at these schools by a standard deviation overall with effects, I think, concentrated, in in lower ages and um, among the poorer kids in the already uh, fairly poor sample size. This is an an extraordinary result, uh, an extraordinary experiment. And I think if if governments were serious about uh, improving the lives of poor black and Hispanic kids or poor kids in general, they would implement these practices into the school system. You know, oh, I think man. what
3: we're up against, Cole, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this is that, you know, a lot of these postmodernist theories, these reified philosophies associated with various forms of critical theory, tend to rob people of agency, right? The message is you have to tear down the whole system, right? And the message is that there has been no progress at all. So my, my sense from this is like the greatest harm that's done by these by these theories is that it robs people of agency. It robs people of a sense that they can build a, a better future, and leaves them with this toxic combination of, of anger and resignation. Now you might be surprised to hear this, Coleman, but I, I used a Clinton quotation a couple of episodes ago, and by Clinton, of course, I mean George Clinton of Parliament Funkadelic. <laughs> and I'm going to the to the America Eats Its Young album again, and and you know one of my favorite uh, tracks from that. You know, by the by the way, I think from this point on, I also would like to be known as. As General Frankenstein, if that's what get. but but the uh, but the uh, but the, uh, the the lyrics the lyrics are you know really about agency, and and uh, and George Clinton sings you know situation is just that it has no power over you you know and this is from the from the track if you don't like the effect don't produce the cause you know and the other lyrics are you know you you don't like what you're about or you don't like what your country's about you know. Um, you know, you you protest this and protest that and eat yourself fat, you know, <laughs> and uh, and and the the whole the whole idea is that hey, we can we can build a better world if we if we work together, you know, and and uh and it's kind of a it's kind of a, a you know a lesson from Stoic philosophy in in many ways, uh, and that you see I can kind of weave through a lot of of uh, Parliament Funkadelic's uh, lyrics, but. You know, what what is your sense of the role that various, you know, critical postmodernist theories play in in uh, in either impeding us in in, in impeding us, really, from making a difference?
0: If if I were a poor black kid uh, growing up with none of the advantages that many people listening probably have had, what would be the best message for me to hear that the whole system is against me? But by all means, Try. But, but keep in mind, everything's against you, right? You will have to work twice as hard to get half as far, but but go ahead. Or should should you give me a realistic, uh, charitable perception of what I'm able to achieve so that I actually feel like I can, like, like I ought to strive for it, right? I'll tell you a story. My grandfather just turned 90 years old. And for his birthday, he wrote 30, 40 pages of memoir. And he included a story about, he grew up in segregated Washington, DC, and he was one of the first black engineers at GE in the fifties, right? And when he got there, he was basically told by a well-meaning white colleague not to apply for a management position because the engineers, they're not gonna be managed by a black guy, right? So for 10 years he just sat there doing his engineering thing civil engineering and not striving for more because he believed his well-meaning white colleague and then he decided to sort of try for it and it turned out all of the all of the white employees were very happy to be managed by him And if he had listened to, again, the well-intentioned person that told him, listen, this place is too racist for you to thrive, he would have just sat in his position and not strive for more. And he ended his career as an executive. And, you know, the lesson of that story is that if I think most people on the left and many people, more moderates, would accept there's a danger to minimizing racism and I would agree to that. You don't want to minimize racism. I also think there's a danger to exaggerating racism because you are telling the next generation of black kids this, this this part of society is not for you. You're not welcome. So, you can't be surprised when they go elsewhere where they're demoralized by the system when they um you know, don't take advantage of all the opportunities that they may may be available to them.
1: I'd like to shift back to reparations for a moment, Coleman. And before George Floyd's murder, which was May of 2020, in August of 2019, there was the 1619 project that came out in the New York Times. I'd curious to your thoughts on how effective the 1619 project has been in terms of driving the race narrative in America, and if you're trying to develop a counter narrative, I appeal to the two historians here. What is the counter narrative to 1619?
0: Yeah, well, the 1619 project as as I imagine many of your listeners know, I, uh, I'll i use a word that I don't particularly like, but pushed misinformation about uh, American history in the sense that the 13 colonies revolted in part to preserve slavery, which is not true at all. Uh, and no major historian accepts as an accurate perception. In fact, the historian they hired for the project to fact check it, because they were journalists, not historians, Mm -hmm. happened to be a black woman, uh, said, this is absolutely untrue. And they ran with it anyway. And she later wrote an article, I believe, in Politico, saying they just bulldozed right through my fact check. I think it was Leslie Harris was her name. Mm -hmm. So they were painting a false picture of American history in order to invalidate the American origin story. And nevertheless, that has been pumped into various school programs all around the country, which I think is is a shame. And I joined something called the 1776 Project at that time to provide a counter-narrative uh, best I could with Bob Woodson. Um, and I, I don't know to what extent that's had an effect, but I've, I've certainly played my part, I feel, in trying to push back against that narrative.
2: Neil, what do you say? I think the debate has suffered from a, a kind of parochialism uh, in the sense that it's it's focused on uh, the United States rather than on the history of slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it would be, I think, very valuable if uh, kids in American schools, as well as students in American colleges, had a sense of the broader global historical context. A point that I made years ago in a book called Empire was that about the least original feature of the United States as a political project was that there was slavery in some of uh, the states uh, because there was slavery in so many different parts of the world in the late 18th century uh, just as there is still slavery in parts of the world uh, today. Slavery is something that goes back a very long time uh, in human history Uh, and so to 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 argue, as the 1619 Project did, that the defining feature of the United States was slavery was was wildly misleading, not only in American terms, but even more so in in global terms. Uh, There there is, I think, a a very strong argument for trying to teach this uh, this topic globally rather than making it the centerpiece of history of the United States, because there were so many other things about the founding that were remarkable. Uh, uh, that we are, of course, as Coleman rightly says, we're sidelining if we decide to make, if we de- decide to make slavery the core issue. And and this subject came up, Coleman, the other day because I, I pointed out that my eleven-year-old son was about to be taught the Southern Poverty Law Center version of American history mm. uh, before I managed to uh, intervene. And and that that's a set of teaching materials that originate with the Southern Poverty Law Center that explicitly recycle the 1619 narrative that the United States was founded on white supremacy. That's its kind of true origin story. Uh, So although this thing has really very little, if any, historical respectability, to me, the striking thing is how successfully it's got into our educational mainstream. So the uh, school, which is not by any means uh, a trendy woke school is uh, is about to start using that kind of material for fifth graders. I, I don't know if you have a, a, any thoughts about that, but I'm I'm really struck by the virality of this kind of content in defiance of all scholarly criticism. Well, you know, I, I just say that, that it's been
3: going on for a while, and I'd love to hear Cohen's response to that question, the virality of it and then how to to counter it. But I really see this latest sort of embrace of post-modernist, post-colonial, various critical theories as an extension of the new left interpretation of history, you know, which really began to gain momentum uh, in the U.S. academy in the 20s and 30s, and then really, you know, increased by orders of magnitude uh, in, in, the, in the Vietnam period. And I would lump this together in sort of the overall kind of curriculum of self-loathing you know, that that questions uh, the founding, the questions really capitalism, the questions uh, the viability and and uh, and benefits of of U.S. democracy and, and and rule of law, and so so what what to do about it? I, I think you know, the, the the debate so far, like so much of what we see in our society, has been this polarized debate. You know, with, with some in, in in response to you know to various aspects of CRT and the sixteen nineteen project, advocating to, for a return of the kind of a contrived. Happy view of American history that that may have predominated uh, during the separate but equal or, you know separate but but uh, unequal period uh, in in American history, and, and I think that's just a false dilemma. I mean, I, I think that we ought to go back to what the founders knew. They knew that our republic would require constant nurturing, and and our our republic has been a, a, a work in progress from the beginning. I think it is wrong, obviously, to teach that our our, our country was founded to preserve slavery, rather than founded on principles that ultimately made that criminal institution untenable. And I think what our students should learn, you know, Bill, to your question, what what do you replace it with? They should learn that hey, we, you know, we 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 failed at the founding, you know, because it wasn't practical uh, in, in the late 18th century to be able to abolish slavery; it just wouldn't work. But then we fought our most destructive war in history uh, to emancipate six million of our fellow Americans. And then of course what you teach then is the struggle wasn't over in many ways it was just beginning with the failure of reconstruction, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and, and Jim Crow and the separate but equal period. But then you ought to teach that, that, that we do have agency. There were improvements. There was the the end of of, of uh, de jure segregation and inequality of opportunity in the 1960s. But hey, de facto inequality of opportunity exists today, right, so hey, so let's get after it. Let's, let's work together and I think you know i i think that, that that that's that that would be should be the overall thematic view of of uh of of a, a course in american history you know especially mm-hmm. with regard uh to slavery and the ongoing struggle to achieve equality of opportunity but colin i'd love to hear what, what you think about this and then and especially the the great you know question that neil asked about how did it go so dang, dang viral and 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 you know mm-hmm. what is your prognosis uh, for for how we might be able to to restore a degree of kind of sanity in, in in the history
0: we teach? So I think in some sense the reason this has gone so viral is because America is and and Western Europeans in some way are more willing than most people in the world and more eager to know the sins and atone for the sins of their ancestors. (laughs) This is not really a a normal tendency worldwide. I was at dinner once with some, some Ghanaian and Nigerian friends of mine, and I asked them, do you guys learn about African participation in the slave trade and how your ancestors captured and sold others to the West? And they said, yes. I said, "Do you learn? Do you feel any guilt for it in school as, as as a culture?" And they said, "No, it's just a neutral fact to us. It's like any other historical fact, right?" That's how most people in the world think about the sins committed either by their ancestors or or by their country. Americans and Western Europeans, to some extent, feel a unique level of guilt, and that is uh, that's commendable. Uh, I, I think that that comes from a re- really well-meaning urge, and as a result. There's an opening for uh, bad faith actors to poke that guilt and just never let up. It's often said that Americans don't want to know about the history of slavery. Um, we're, we're somehow we're disinterested. Uh, that could not be further from the truth. Okay, I, I would say America, maybe with the exception of Germany, has done more than any nation on earth to acknowledge. It's passed since. Uh, The the Senate, U.S. Senate, apologized for lynching in 2004. Both houses of Congress apologized for slavery and Jim Crow in 2008 and 2009, respectively. At least eight different slaveholding states, southern states, have individually, formally apologized for slavery. We have a museum in Washington, D.C., in the nation's capital, partly federally funded, that has an extensive exhibit on slavery in the Middle Passage and when it opened so many it had so many more visitors to that exhibit and they were staying so long in that exhibit that they had to triage and and ration people's time there because there was so much interest that doesn't sound like a nation that's not interested in learning about its own history that sounds like a nation that's more interested than most in learning its own history and especially the darker periods of of its history so i think we have to understand some of the people pushing this narrative that Americans are ignorant and don't care and want to whitewash the past, uh, a lot of them are not operating in good faith. For a lot of them, they don't want the debt to be repaid. The, the, The power of still being able to claim the debt is worth more to them than the debt actually being repaid. And so there's a bad faith game being played.
2: Colin, can I ask you a personal question? I completely sure. change our tack as we are running short on time. I mean, I, I don't want you to feel as if you spent uh, part of your morning with a bunch of boomers. I'm not even sure <laughs> if you'd heard of George Clinton when uh, <laughs> HR brought him up. Of course,
0: Parliament Funkadelic.
2: Oh, I'm relieved because uh, it's so before your time. But I actually want you to address a very younger, a much younger demographic for a moment, and specifically my sons. Mm-hmm. Uh, who are aged 11 and, and five and are of mixed race, but will mm-hmm. certainly be seen by many people, uh, including I think many police officers as black as they grow old, because they're certainly a lot browner than me in pigmentation because their mothers from Somalia. You look back uh, on where you were at 11, and you've been enormously successful very fast. Uh, you're a prodigious talent. Uh, and you've achieved all of this as somebody who's who's black. What's the advice you'd give? Because I'm not sure I can give them the right advice, as I'm white. I'm not sure how do I really prepare Thomas and Campbell for being perceived to be black in the United States of the 2020s. So I'd love you to give them some advice right now.
3: Hmm.
0: I mean, my advice is that... Uh, there are some real racists out there, but they are very few and far between. And in 2023, they're not going to be the reason that you are not successful. They are, um, like I said, just so far the exception to the rule of people you are likely to meet. And your life is in your own hands, right? It's go back, you know, I love that I'm able to talk to my grandfather and just say, what was it like when you were a kid because it was completely different. There was a color line in this country that literally could not be crossed. And today it's just I can effortlessly go to a white employer, a white friend, uh, an Asian friend, a Hispanic friend. nobody there's no there's nothing stopping you now. There's nothing stopping you now and it is a disservice to the people who really were stopped in the past to pretend that those barriers are still anywhere near as thick as they were.
2: Thanks, I will.
0: Even though, even though hucksters will try to convince you of that for reasons that have to do with their own um, emotion and, and psychology.
1: Okay, final question for you, Coleman, and that is, uh, we are well past the Obama presidency, uh, and you were too young to vote for Barack Obama. I'm curious if you would have voted for Obama if you had the chance, but Obama came in with the dream of a post-racial America. Here, we could put a black man in the White House. He had put a black man to climb the pyramid. But here we are in 2023, and I've listened to you on podcasts where you talk about the phrase colorblind society and how, for some people, this is a pejorative, that it is a terrible phrase to use, but is the dream of a colorblind society a post-racial America? Is it realistic?
0: I think the dream of a colorblind society is similar to the dream of a peaceful society in the sense that we'll never really get there. Mm-hmm. But we, we ought to know that we're on the right road. We ought to know what we're aiming for. Like we all know when society is getting more violent. We know when we're going backwards on that road. We may, we're never going to get to a society that is perfectly peaceful, but like, hopefully we can acknowledge what the goal is and then haggle about how best to get there. In my view, the goal, that ideal, that North Star that we may never get to, but should be going in the direction of is a colorblind society, a society where I try my very best to treat you as an individual, not with respect to your ancestry or background, and you try your very best to treat me as an individual. And we try to enshrine that in our legal and political system. Now, I'm not saying you can't have your culture. Um, I'm saying, you know, when it comes to the domain of politics and ethics, it can't matter that you happen to be you and I happen to be me, right? <laughs> that that can't be the way that we deal with each other from the perspective of just different tribes making tribal claims that we should move towards a society where ethical and political conversations are had on the basis of race neutrality. So is it possible? It's, um, you know, we're either going to be walking towards it or we're going to be walking away from it. And my, my claim is that we ought to know which direction we want to walk.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Coleman, our time is up, but I want you to promise us something. You'll come out to Stanford, and you'll do Goodfellows Live, and you'll bring your instrument, and you and Neil will jam. <laughs>
2: Anytime. And then hang out with Thomas and Campbell. Thank- that was a great answer, by the way. I'm really looking forward to playing that to them.
1: Thank you. Coleman, thanks for coming out, Goodfellows. Thanks for taking part in the conversation. Hope to see you soon. My pleasure. Let's move on to a new segment, and that is Neil Ferguson's column in the UK Spectator. The headline, if you want to look it up, Trump's second act, he can still win in spite of everything. That kind of tells you the gist of the column. Neil, long story short, here's what you wrote. You contend that the, quote, campaign of lawfare against Trump has begun to backfire. You point to other world leaders who have survived legal challenges, even managed to get reelected. You point out that Joe Biden is not popular. And you remind us that in American politics, it's the economy, stupid, and we could be 17 months From now looking at a recession. Anything that I missed, Neil?
2: No, those are the essentials. This is uh, one of the more staringly obvious columns I've written in the last uh, few years. It just seems to me very clear uh, that in 2024, Donald Trump has a high likelihood of being the Republican nominee. He's the front runner right now. And historically, if you're the front runner now, uh, for the Republican nomination, you're very likely to be the nominee. There are very few exceptions to that rule. He himself was one of the exceptions. John McCain was another. There really aren't any other exceptions. So he's quite likely to be the nominee, and uh, Ron DeSantis's chances of catching up with him have uh, been looking less and less promising uh, in the last uh, couple of months. Secondly, if you are president and you're looking for a second term and there's a recession, any time in the two years before you're up for re-election, you won't get the second term. And there hasn't been a a president who's beaten that uh, particular law of politics in 100 years. It stopped Jerry Ford getting a second term, topped Jimmy Carter. Uh, It, it of course, uh, was one of the reasons George H.W. Bush did not get re-elected. And of course, Donald Trump didn't get re-elected in 2020 because of a recession. Uh, And so if there's a recession, which Larry Summers thinks is 70% probable at some point in the next year, I don't think that Joe Biden gets reelected. And so ergo, uh, it follows that Donald Trump has a much higher probability than most people currently realize of being the second uh, president since Grover Cleveland to get two non-consecutive terms. I'm amazed there's not more discussion of this. It's gone up a bit since his CNN town hall. I see Peggy Noonan wrote a column noticing that this went rather better for Trump than CNN was probably expecting. But I still think that, generally speaking, few people realize just how likely this has become.
1: So, Neil, in the last good fellows, scarred, I scarred you by bringing up uh, Arsenal's struggles. Now you've scarred me because I worked on HW's re-election campaign in 1992. HR, Neil mentioned the uh, town hall that Trump did last week on CNN. And with all things Trump, We just focus on the performance art, and fascinating to watch the reaction to this. He was vintage Trump in terms of being bombastic, insulting. My goodness, the audience lapped it up. CNN won the night ratings nights, and yet there is very little conversation about one thing I'd like us to get into, and that is what Donald Trump would actually do if Neil is right and he managed to get reelected. Let me read two things to you, HR. First of all, here's what Trump said on Fox News in April with regard to China and Xi Jinping: "Quote, President Xi is a brilliant man. If you went all over Hollywood to look for." somebody to play the role of President G. you couldn't find it. There's nobody like that. The look, the brain, the whole thing. And here's what he said last week on CNN, H.R., quote, with regard to the Ukraine-Russia war, quote, I want everybody to stop dying. They're dying.
2: Russians and Ukrainians. I want them to stop dying. And I'll have that done. I'll have that done in 24 hours.
1: So, H.R., let's look forward to two years from now in a second Trump presidency, what is he going to do about the war in Ukraine, and what's he going to do about China?
3: Well, I think he'll be disappointed. You know, I think President Trump has a great deal of confidence in his ability to make deals, right? And this has, mm-hmm. of course, been the, the hallmark of his career, at least as, as he views it. And and I think what he underestimates in this case is, is that is that Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin have objectives and are motivated in ways that go far beyond anything that's in reaction to anything he's going to do, you know, or any promises he can make to them or his personal relationship. I think one of Trump's strengths has had been his ability to kind of separate the relationship from the issues at hand, but he was kind of hard-nosed when you look at it in retrospect on on the issues at hand with China and then even even with Russia, you know, during which you know, his the first year of his his presidency, he placed more sanctions on Russian entities than the previous eight years of the Obama administration. Uh, but I think his his faith in personal relationships, though, it, it, he he has that faith to a fault. And and I think the most dramatic example of that were the summits with Kim Jong Un. You know, where he had really high hopes, and remember talking about you know the love letters that they're writing to each other. And and so I, I think that uh, this demonstrates you know one of the you know, one of the, the flaws is his. His sort of relentless confidence in his, in his own ability, uh, and maybe not applying, what, you know, what we might call strategic empathy from from Zachary Shore, you know, viewing these complex challenges that we face uh, from the perspective of the other, and maybe a full understanding of of the emotions and the ideology and the aspirations that drive and constrain Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin.
1: And Neil, what would happen with regard to Russia and Ukraine? I would note that Trump will not call Putin a war criminal, and Trump has a very personal grudge against Zelensky.
2: Look, I think I should make it clear that this is not a scenario that I look forward to, and I'm sure HR right. feels the same uh, discomfort at the prospect, uh, but I do think we need to face uh, this reality. Uh, the problem uh, in the case of Ukraine is that President of the United States has a considerable amount of power over this particular war uh, because Ukraine is so reliant on on U.S. support uh, in terms of finance, in terms of military supplies. Uh, and uh, of course, in the same way, the sanctions that have been imposed uh, on uh, Russia since uh, February of last year are, uh, at, at, in the first instance, the result of uh, presidential decisions, not only, but uh, in large measure. And so uh, from a Ukrainian perspective, Trump's reelection would be pretty disastrous. Uh, They would have to worry about uh, support being withheld, uh, or at at the very least, uh, that support would be withheld if they did not go along with a uh, peace initiative that I imagine uh, Putin would seize with both hands. The Russians, I'm pretty sure, are hanging in there hoping uh, that if they can just keep this war going. Uh, into late 2024, they may be rescued by a change in American uh, domestic politics. On China, it's worth remembering how very uncommitted Trump has uh, always been on the issue of Taiwan. There's a memorable passage in John Bolton's memoir of his time uh, as national security advisor of, of Trump picking up a Sharpie uh, in the Oval Office and saying this Sharpie is Taiwan and the, and this desk is China. Am I really going to send a naval expedition to save a Sharpie? So I think uh, another aspect of a Trump re-election would be a significant change in the direction of travel in U.S.-China relations. I I suspect if Trump had been re-elected in 2020, he would probably have done a trade deal with Xi Jinping by now because he's really not that much of a cold warrior. Trump is a trade warrior, and I think he always regarded the tariffs as, as the opening play in a negotiation with Xi I mean HR's right Trump's always overestimated himself as a negotiator particularly in the realm of international relations but from a Russian or Chinese point of view there's a potentially big Improvement if uh if he's if he's re and I would imagine that the that they would seize the opportunities that that presented very eagerly so nobody should underestimate the foreign policy implications, to say nothing of the domestic implications, which we haven't touched on. But if we go back to the conversation we just had with Coleman Hughes, one thing's for sure, uh, the reelection of Trump would cause a great wave of anxiety, not to say hysteria on on the American left, as of course it did in 2016. Uh, And this recurrent theme, that we've heard again uh, recently from President Biden that there's this huge threat of white supremacism and racism. Right. All of that would be resuscitated, and it would create, I think, an incredibly toxic atmosphere uh, in the United States itself, which would hardly help us pursue coherent uh, foreign policy goals. You know, Neil, I just want—I just want to just uh,
3: tie into that. I mean, I do really. I'm my main concern is like what we do to ourselves right uh, because he he is so polarizing, you know I mean it, God, wouldn't it be great to have a leader that can get to the politics of, of addition? The other point I'd like just to make on the on the foreign policy aspect of this is you know these authoritarian leaders uh, who are pursuing agendas at our expense have studied him, you know and they will do their best uh, to, to manipulate his decisions and his perspective to play to his his, his, uh, his ego, uh, for example. And I think we saw this quite dramatically in the way that Erdogan was able to convince Trump to say we're pulling all completely out of Syria you know and and uh discard our relationship with the Kurds which never didn't ultimately happen uh but was on the on the road to happening because you know Erdogan knew what 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 buttons to push well look how expensive this is for you you know look at, you know what, why do you care about this i mean ISIS is already defeated just leave you know and and, and of course you know, the the other arguments about why to be there uh which is to try to influence the the peace process over time or to diminish Iranian influence in the region, uh, of course, you know um, were, were factors that that he knew. You know when he made decisions to stay in Syria with a small force, but Erdogan was able to, I think, to manipulate that kind of a reaction.
1: Mm-hmm. Final question, Neil: You've laid out a scenario for Trump winning. Now let's play odds maker. If I went over to the UK and laid down a wager on this, what sort of odds do you think I should be looking at for a Trump re-election?
2: Well, the answer is uh, that it's fifty percent because. Uh, every election is close, and mm-hmm. every election in the United States comes down to a finite number and relatively small number of counties in a small number of states. Uh, 2020 was, in fact, quite close. 2016 was close. Right. Uh, and so anybody who thinks that it's a really low-probability scenario that he gets re-elected it hasn't been paying attention to the way American elections work, where most states are already pretty sewn up, whoever the nominees are. I think Trump is uh, is being underestimated at the moment in most people's minds because they're not thinking enough about how the system works. And these machines are powerful. Both parties are powerful machines. Uh, and, and that means that uh, a, a, an elderly uh, president like Joe Biden, who's already got an approval rating worse than where Trump's was at the same stage of his presidency, if he goes into this election on the back of a recession 50%s generous to biden to be yeah. honest i i would almost put it higher if there's a recession on that conditional probability actually it's more like 75% trump gets reelected
1: okay all right gentlemen let's move on to the lightning round lightning. Hey Neil, let's start with you. Let's do quick questions so we can get through this rapidly. Neil, Henry Kissinger turns 100 later this month. He actually, his birthday is three days before our next Goodfellows taping, so let's honor the great man now. If Neil Ferguson were asked to create a Mount Rushmore, four choices of the history's most significant foreign policy advisors, four people to carve on the side of a mountain, Neil, who would you put on that mountain?
2: Well, assuming that only American national security advisors are eligible, this is in fact easy. Henry Kissinger would be up there. Brent Scowcroft uh, would be up there. Our boss, Condi Rice, would be up there. And our fellow good fellow, H.R.
1: McMaster, would be up there. That's the four. Well done. H.R., Russia's May Day Victory Parade in Red Square consisted of fewer troops than usual and one, count them, one tank, a World War II era T-34. What was Putin thinking?
3: Yeah, I think he's just in denial. Right. And and I, I think this is really encouraging to see the degree to which uh, his forces have been depleted. And I think, you know, over time, it's going to be inescapable uh, that he, he himself is going to have to come to that conclusion that this was his greatest folly uh, and, and that Russia cannot accomplish its objectives in Ukraine.
1: Mm-hmm. Neil Erdogan, is that Turkish for survivor or Turkish for about to be voted out of office?
2: He looks increasingly likely to survive. He's done better than expected in the first round. It'll go to a runoff. And I have to say, betting against Erdogan has been a losing strategy for more than a dozen years. And this is why I'm not at all surprised that he's still standing against the expectations of most uh, supposedly informed commentators.
1: H.R. Wendy Sherman, the first woman to serve as Deputy Secretary of State in the United States, is out of a job after it was revealed that she had blocked certain sanctioned measures against targeting the Chinese Communist Party. Is this a big deal, little deal, or no deal at all? It's a
3: big deal because I think what Wendy Sherman, you know, with all due respect to her, never got is that weakness is provocative and that her career has been really uh, an effort to make concession after concession to some of America's greatest adversaries from the you know, from the, the you know, the, a really bad uh, negotiation with, with North Korea to the, to the Iran nuclear deal, to this latest uh, attempt
1: at, at appeasing the Chinese Communist Party. Mm-hmm. Neil, final question. Elon Musk is out as C, uh, CEO of Twitter. He has stepped down. Is this a Fergusonian prophecy coming true that Napoleon met his Waterloo? No, I don't think this is
2: Waterloo. I think this is an attempt to address a very specific problem that, that Elon Musk's created for himself, namely the decline in the advertising revenues uh, that has followed his uh, takeover and his changes at, at Twitter. That's all. It's not Waterloo. Uh, it's a, a tactical retreat, and a new general is being sent into battle. Maybe he's Wellington at, at Waterloo, and, and maybe the new CEO is Blucher coming in from the (laughs) flank. It can't be ruled out, but Napoleon was one of my better jokes of last year.
1: Yes. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Great show today. Uh, Great conversation and uh, look forward to the next one. Having John Cochran back as well. On behalf of our two good fellows, Neil Ferguson and H.R. McMaster and the missing John Cochran, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, we hope you enjoyed today's show. Make sure you subscribe to our show. You don't miss the next one. It will be out in late May, early June. And again, on behalf of my colleagues, thanks for watching, and we will see you soon. Till then, take care. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds. uh and away we go in five
2: ready neil as ready as i'll ever be good